This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Sefarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. So the, we're going to speak about somebody that I assume nobody here heard about, but somebody that occupied an extraordinary um, moment in history, Adam Gadlbiyasa, at a nexus of tremendous change, and a lot of what he said, what he did, is still relevant. The person's name was Rabbi Yosef David Zinsheim. He lived from 17, the dates vary, the 28 or 32 or 45, till 1812, um, mostly in France. And in order to understand a little bit about um, the person and his extraordinary moment in history, it's going to be important to give a little bit of background. So, uh, because the historical context is extremely important. First of all, whenever you speak about European history, um, things shift. Two, two you say this, remember. First of all, countries were drawn and redrawn and hacked to pieces and reconstituted and empires. There was a tremendous amount of um, back and forth. In other words, the same place could be in six different countries um, back and forth. So the countries a, are not significant. Provinces are a lot more significant. They tended to be, to be permanent because they were, um, they were natural configurations, geographic configurations, whereas countries were more what kings put together. Two, the concept of a country was evolutionary, pretty much. In other words, the natural, um, the natural groupings, political groupings, was an estate, a parrots, a lodge, a, a, a duchy of sorts, and only as history moved on did countries start becoming significant, empires. It was a lot to do, it just was very difficult to manage a, a big country um, with what they had in those days. So a lot of times the pretzim of a local place were a lot more strong. Even if they had a king, the king's rule was not so tremendously strong and the local fiefdoms and the states and pretzim were usually the ones that were stronger most of the time. A lot of times they're the ones that elected a king but just sort of it, it was a balance of power, and they usually had a lot more in the day-to-day power. That's the background. The, the place we're going to be talking about, where David Zinsheim operated in, was called, the two provinces, called Alsace and Lorraine. They were, Germany sits north and east of France. It's sort of... Um, France is, it goes stretches further south and is further to the west, Germany further to the east. There are two provinces in the middle called Alsace and Lorraine. They were important provinces because they had later years especially they had coal, they had a lot of minerals and, and, and stuff like that. And it was like a ping pong between France and Germany back and forth. Um, there was so, so they kept bouncing back and forth between Germany and France in the later years. I think at least six times it switched back and forth. So you have German influences and French influences in it. 
the probably the most famous city for us would be Strasbourg, which is today in France, but the name Strasbourg is, is German, you can hear it, and it has actually has a, a Yiddish Kehilla um, to some degree, it had for a long time, and it, these two provinces kept bouncing back and forth between France and Germany. That's the beginning of the history. The Jews in France were, had some very good Tkufis, and then some bad Tkufis, and some terrible Tkufis, and some horrendous Tkufis. Um, from the Crusaders onwards, back and forth, a uh, very typical story. Um, they, first of all, France was not yet France, but they kept getting expelled from one end to the other end, and they kept, like the king would let them in for 10 years, squeeze them dry, toss them out, Finally, by around 1500, there were no Jews left in France, period. In what's called France today, there were no Jews left. They would have been finally expelled, and that was it. That stayed for about 150 years. What happened was, in the 1600s, um, about 1618 or so, um, there was a war called the Thirty Years' War. The reason it's called 30 years war because it lasts for 30 years. It was quite easy. And um, it included, um, as since they were all members of the, the religion of peace and love, Christianity, so the Catholics and the Protestants killed each other, and the, the Protestants among themselves killed each other, the Catholics, politics, the Pope, the, the kings. It, it, was a, it was one of the messier, it was one of the messier periods of time in European history and by the time the war was over Europe was devastated. Um, part of that was because the amount of people that were killed in the war, disease, they would burn down cities, country, you know, farms. So by, by 1648 everybody was bled dry and then they, they had what was called, it was um, the Peace of Westphalia which was a place where they organized different countries and they solidified a whole bunch of countries and Alsace-Lorraine passed into France. At this time, France was so bled dry and so devastated as were other countries that they very much wanted Jews in. They wanted, they needed people, they needed commerce, they needed money to borrow, they needed everything and the Jews began to filter back into France, and it was always Xerus that they could, they could live in only certain places, not other places. They couldn't live in the big cities, they could live in the estates, they couldn't live in the estates, they could live in the big cities. It's back and forth, um, you know, it, it, because the central government was not always so strong, but by and large, from 1640, 1650 onwards, they began coming back again. There were Sephardi Jews that came in Anusim, that had come after 1492, in the 1500s they had sort of filtered into South France, most of them assimilated, most of them um, did not stay Jewish, but the Jews that began, Ashkenazi Jews began coming in, and Alsace-Lorraine was a place that was Khashiv. In, this, in, in this, the end of the 1600s, in the, in the 1700s, there still were, there were, there were a lot of Xeris on the Jews. One especially irksome Xero was, that Jews and cattle had to pay money for passing through a town. So they would, you know, so if somebody passed through, the, the Jews and the cattle 
and, and the cattle paid per head the same price. It was a disgusting, degrading type of, of tax. It became Butler in the late 1700s, but that was, the, that was life. Um, they had some very Choshev Rabbonim and cities in the 1700s. So again, until 1648, 1650, no Jews in France, slowly it got it rebuilt, and such Choshev Rabbonim as and the Chok Yaakov, Rabbi Yaakov Reisha, the Rabbionis um, Naibeshitz was a Rav in Metz, and the Shagasari was a Rav in Metz. These were all Rabbonim of you know world-renowned Rabbonim who would, had Rabbonis there. It became it became established Kehillas with a few tens of thousand Jews, and that's the setting for where we're talking about. Rabbi Yisrael Zinsheim was born in that, in, that, in, in that area. He um, was a tremendous, he was a big Ilui, and he would, we'd see later, this farm that he wrote were incredible, and he was, he married into a very extraordinarily wealthy family. The family was um, was the wealthiest family in the area, and he could sit alamnucha and he sat and he learned, he learned, he wrote. That was his life. While and then he had a yeshiva together. His brother-in-law had established a yeshiva in one of the cities, and he was uh, rosh yeshiva there. He had talmidim, and that was his life. In the 1700s, at 1789 the French monarchy came to an end and you had the French Revolution. French Revolution had two or three different phases. The first phase was a revolution where the, the, the people came to sort of an agreement with the government about the king's powers were tempered very much, the powers in the hands of, of, the, of the parliament and they had all sorts of arrangements and they also slowly began to free the Jews from all sorts of xeris. It was it, it, it was reasonably the, the tide was positive for the Jews that the Jews would finally the, the, the laws made against the Jews would finally become um, uh, abolished. And there was a back and forth that they were still anti-Semites, but the Chalif and the Ruach was much more positive. In 1792, the Jews finally got the right to become citizens of France. In 1793 and 94, there was something called the Reign of Terror. Um, the, 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 if, of, of the people who made the revolution, there was somebody, the most notable one was called Robespierre, and he was a, a fanatical liberal, um, and he, he was charismatic, he and a few friends of his began, they, they formed what was called the Committee for the Safety of the State, of the people, safety of the people, everything's for the people, I forgot, That's, it's uh, very important. And they began killing all prisoners, all enemies of the people. Um, I mean, there was like, the amount of people that got killed was, was incredible. Anybody, for whatever reason that they decided, like, like Russia would do eventually, Russians actually considered him a hero, um, for good reason. He, he, does, he does definitely um, embody some of the best qualities that Stalin, you know, <laughs> he, he was definitely a, a, a worthy... A, he, um, so the first thing he did was he created this reign of terror, and anybody that had had money, anybody that was important, that was significant, he guillotined 
and you know the, everyone knows about Marie Antoinette and the, and uh, the king and Louis XVI and so on. That was him, Louis XIV. Um, he then moved into high gear, and he really had it in for the Catholics. He, he despised the Catholics. He felt that they had been together with the with the with the monarchy and that they were oppressive. So he he, he abolished. He closed all houses of all churches. He made them into temples of the mind, of reason, worshiping the mind. And and they made no more Shabbos. It, it was every month was divided into three ten-day periods, where you know the first day to the tenth, and it was a Issachama to celebrate uh, Sundays. The um, he didn't care much. For, he had nothing against the Jews in particular, but you know, as sort of a Gilgalshvua, being that he had to get rid of Catholicism, he tossed the Protestants and Jews also in, into it. Um, the shuls were possessed. Rabbanim, whichever were were nirdaf. Um, you, if you got caught keeping Shabbos, it was Achas Very, very rough time. Um, and at this time, Rabbi Vazinsheim had to um, go away in hiding for two years. He ended up in Switzerland because if they caught you, they, they, they were very swift. Uh, you know, they were very efficient. From from the time of rest to the guillotine, they, they didn't wait 24 hours. So it was like, you know, they, if you got caught and you were a, a religious figure, they were, it was fanatically religious. Um, he finally made himself the, the, the pope Robespierre made himself the pope of this religion, of this non-religious religion. He called himself the high priest. He, he, he came with big day kahuna. Um, so a very French imagination the person had. And finally his friends decided, you know, you don't know who's next. They killed him. And that was the end of it. And then, they, and then, and then it sort of rocked around very unstable. They had a, a, a directory. They had all sorts of things. Napoleon stepped into that vacuum, and he took over. And at first, he was one of the directors. Then he finally became the head. He became an emperor, and he set out to conquer the world. He conquered a lot. He came back and reorganized France. The truth be said is that France was pretty in the big in the overall picture. France did a lot better with him than without him. He, he, he put some, some, some seder into France. By and large, his laws were positive. They were what we would call progressive. Um, and he organized everything. Um, and, you know, with all of his... Uh, he was, he was a, a, a despot. But, but the things he made were generally good. He also dread... He, he, he bled France dry because of all the wars. He, he tried to conquer the world. He failed in Russia, failed with England. He, he conquered Israel, but he had to leave because he just was stretched too thin, um, and so on. So Napoleon came in the 1800s, and he decided he's going to deal with the Jews. Um, now, the Jews were not clear what his real feelings were towards the Jews. In any country that he conquered, his first thing was he emancipated the Jews. He made a law that all laws against Jews are butler mevutl, and so on. Um, did he really do it to Tavis the Jews, or did he do it because he wanted the Jews on his side? Nobody knows. 
he sent a message that he's going to Israel to liberate it and give back the Jews to Israel. Um, it's clear that he's doing it to get the Jewish assistant of the Turkish Pasha to be on his side. His name was Farhi, even Farhi, the streets are in, in Gula, uh, uh, on his name. He was like the sort of the commander of Acre and the vice commander. So it seems that that's what he wanted. So when he conquered countries, he, 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 he instituted that. And that, that was quite clearly a, a ploy. But in France itself, he started by freeing the Jews. In other words, all laws that restricted Jews, he canceled. He then backtracked because some of his vitals told the Jews are terrible. And finally, he called in the Jews and he said, listen, you have a choice. Are you Frenchmen? And then you'll have all the rights of Frenchmen. Or are you a foreign nation? He said, you're not a religion, you're a nation. I can't have another nation living in France. So I need you to, um, to show me very clearly that you are part and parcel of the French nation. He called in the, this group of Jewish notables and, he's, and he said, here are nine questions or a dozen questions, I think, and, and um, I need your answer. And I want you to answer truthfully if you're worthy of being Frenchman or be expelled. Now, at this point, two things. First of all, Jews didn't have where to go. Expelling a Jew meant there's no place. There was no place to go. Every place, one place was worse than the other. There wasn't any place to go. One. Two. Um, the the Haskalah and the reform, I said more, the reform had already cast a shadow on French Jewry. Remember, we said Alsace Lorraine had been German, so there was a lot of German influence. The, what the Germans had started to do in the 1700s had instantly infiltrated, infiltrated Alsace Lorraine, and there was a lot of pro reform movement. There were not that many Tamil Chachamim, people were not getting a, any Jewish education. The Chido we spoke about. Um, he was, was there in the 1700s on a tour, you know, on a fundraising trip for Eretz Yisrael, and he complained that there's only one house where he could even meet Mulchiks, meet, meet Sadakashras, and none of the kids are getting a Jewish education, and it's really terrible. So the Ruach of the people was already assimilationist, which unfortunately would become the end of what would happen to French Jewry, mostly. Two, Napoleon hung a sword over this group. This group answered, uh, what they what they answered, and Rabbi Yosef Zinsheim was amongst that group. Um, he was not happy with Napoleon was happy with the answers, but he said, um, "That's what the notables. I need the rabbis should give their haskamah to this." So in 1806, he a year later, 1807, he called the Sanhedrin. He he made 71 Sanhedrin members. 45 Rabbonim and 26 laymen, and he convened them in a grand hall and called the meeting Sanhedrin. They should discuss this. And if they approve these points, then the Jews can stay in their freedom. If not, um, Jews will have to go. The, the one that was elected the head of this, both the first group and the second group, was Rebbe Zedavid Zinsheim. 
He was an extraordinary Talmud Chacham. He was a, a, a beautiful speaker. He also had a lot of ideas and worldly things. He, he was a person that was shaykhted. But you're talking about, I mean, it, it's, imagine you walking on a tightrope that you, underneath you is uh, um, a raging fire. It, there was very, very little room for maneuvering and so on. So I want to read, first of all, a tefillah that he composed. So this, the, 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 the opening of the Sanhedrin was an extremely formal event. I mean, it takes uh, French imagination. It was a big palace, and everybody wore robes, and it was grand and solemn, you know, the, 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 whole, the whole spiel. And he composed a special tefillah. And you note, it, what's important is to listen to... It had to be schmaltzy, beyond schmaltz. And you also needed to leave some remosim about um, what it is that, that you really think. That's very tough. To, to be honest and schmaltzy at the same time, it's not, not an easy accomplishment. Um, so the main complaint, I mean, Napoleon's complaint about the Jews was they're isolationist. They keep to themselves. They see themselves as as independent of the government's rule. They do what they whatever they want to do. They and the Ica place where they had the tightness was they charge high interest to the goyim, which is terrible because the Jews themselves don't charge interest. They're going to charge interest. That's an enemy of the people. Uh, mind you, it was the only profession the Jews had. They, they were not allowed to own farms, they were not allowed to work. It, 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 was, it was one of the most absurd things because, yes, the Goyim forced them into it because they, they weren't allowed to own land, they couldn't farm, they couldn't enter this guild, that guild, the other guild. Come out, the only thing to do was, was buy land money, maybe sell third hand clothing. That was about it. So, but I can find him, so he has it fill up. So he starts out to Hashem Levadecha, Tasisas Hashemayim, Shmeyah Hashemayim, you know, a whole long Fetzi Nusach, Atak Bachata Bavrom, you brought us to Har Sinai, you gave us the magnificent Torah and taught us what to do. However, with the long years of Golos of wandering from nation to nation, we have slowly degenerated and, um, and we've started to act in ways that are not so moral. In other words, the faults you find us because of that. And now Kodesh Baruch did a gewaltige favor with us, and he, he brought this wondrous noble person who is such a wise man, wiser than wise, uh, our dear King Napoleon, may God, he opened up his eyes and decided to do good for Kal Yisrael. And he, he and and he looked into it with his phenomenal chachma, and he realized that our problems are because of what's happened to us, and therefore he's decided that he's going to um, do something for us, something positive for us. He decided to gather us together, seventy-one people, like the Sanhedrin of Yor. And he is the one who appointed us to this great honor. And in order that we have the government's uh, approval to be able to make this takanas. In other words, he's saying, this ain't no Sanhedrin. This is not Hashem's doing, not doing halacha. It's Napoleon's Sanhedrin, and, and, and it's his doing. 
And then he says, we have a tremendous task in front of us. Give us the koyach, the seich, and the das, not to err, not to go yimino small, and so on and so forth. And, and a lot of abakash and tefillah, that they not make any mistakes, which obviously is, <laughs> is what he's talking about. And everybody was, the French people were extremely inspired from the tefillahs, so beautiful and moving, and, and so such fidelity to the government. I want to read the questions. It's 12 questions, and then I'll read what the answers. One, is it lawful for Jews to have more than one wife? Two, is divorce allowed by the Jewish religion? Is divorce, and this obviously is coming off, off, the, off the heels of, of, the, of, 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 of Catholicism. Is divorce valid, although pronounced by the courts of justice, but not by the courts of justice, but by virtue of laws in contradiction to the French code? In other words, um, is a Jewish get chal when the government asks it? Three, may a Jewish marry a Christian? May a Jew marry a Christian woman? Or does jo- Jewish law order that the Jews should only intermarry among themselves? Four, in the eyes of Jews, are Frenchmen not of the Jewish religion considered as brethren or as strangers? Five, what conduct does Jewish law prescribe to us Frenchmen not of Jewish religion? Six, do the Jews born in France, France and treated by the laws as French citizens acknowledge France as their country? Are they bound to defend it? Are they bound to obey the laws and follow directions of a civil code? Seven, who elects the rabbis? Eight, what kind of police jurisdiction do the rabbi exercise over Jews? Um, are the police jurisdiction of the rabbis in the forms of election regulated by Jewish law or are those sanctioned by custom? Ten, are there professions from which the Jews are excluded by the law? That's why there are no Jewish farmers and craftsmen. They never bothered to think that it might be a French law, but whatever. Eleven, does Jewish law forbid the Jews to take usury from their brethren? Twelve, does it forbid or does it allow usury in dealing with strangers? That were the questions. In other words, basically, are you a different nation or are you Frenchmen uh, practicing a religion? That's the take of the question. The answers. One, that after Rabbi Negershim's Isser, polygamy is forbidden to Israelites. That's fine. Two, and this is tricky, the divorce by Jewish law is valid only after previous decision of the civil authorities. Um, it's kind of a technical lie, but you could. But but it, what it's meant is, a Jew living in France is bound by French laws. He is not allowed to marry without getting a civil divorce. one must also. So. Technically, this is true the way he phrased it. In other words, he made it very clear that it's not that the, the, the... Three, that the religious act of marriage must be preceded by a civil contract. Again, since the Tina Machusadina, we will not make Git Noktushin without also having civil. He was willing to go with that, which, which is fine. Four, marriage contract between Israelites and Christians are binding although they cannot be celebrated with religious forms. So now we'll call them Mr. and Mrs., but you can't have Sheva Baruchas and stuff like that. You can't, you can't make a, a, a religious wedding. Every Israelite is religiously bound to consider his non-Jewish fellow citizens as brothers and to aid, protect, and love them as though they were co-religionists. Fine. Six, 
the Israelite is required to consider the land of his birth or adoption as the fatherland and shall love and defend it when called upon. You know, Shlom Malchus. Seven, Judaism does not forbid any kind of handicraft or occupation. Eight, that it is commendable for Israelites to engage in agriculture, manual labor, and the arts as their ancestors in Israel were wanted to do. And finally, Israelites are Jews, uh, Israelites are forbidden to exact usury from Jew or Christian. So, um, ribis. So, um, these, th- don't, this, this is stretching it. In other words, um, halachically, obviously, that's not correct. I guess he's going with the fact that it's, you know, and therefore you have to comply with laws. Um, the, uh, it, it was, like I said before, it was a very, very, I mean, this is one of the most excruciating um, a, a, a process because to say something wrong to Napoleon, besides possibly being killed, but every, or the Jews expelled is a death sentence for for tens and tens of thousands of Jews for the um, to, to to set something in place that is um, that would be wrong halakhically, absolutely, like the, only the civil divorce. So these answers are, I guess, the best you can do on, on diplomacy. Um, he was very very taken by these answers, and. Um, he was fine. He accepted them. He was now. They also created the French rabbinate, rabbinate which is called the consistoire. It's a it's 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 a it's a system of rabbinic. They, they divided the country into like different sections. Each one has two or three rabbanim and and a chief rabbi and so on and so forth. And he became the first chief rabbi. It was because of him that he staved off the reform as much as possible. He couldn't do it totally because the way the government had set up the consistoire, there was a lot of independence in each province. And when a province had Shkotzim and that was it, they, they went more reform. But, but he did the best that he could. Two interesting letters from Napoleon, what he thought about the Jews. So the le- his letter to the Minister of Interior on 29th, November 1806, he says, it is necessary to reduce, if not destroy, the tendency of the Jewish people to practice a very great number of activities that are harmful to civilization and to public order and society in all the countries of the world. It is necessary to stop the harm by preventing it. Um, to prevent it, it is necessary to change the Jews. Once part of the youth will take their place in our armies, they will cease to have Jewish interests and sentiments. Their interests and sentiments will be French. So one letter of Napoleon is clear that his intention is to get them to assimilate as much as possible. Another letter, um, somebody, a physician, uh, um, had written um, asking him why he emancipated the Jews. He said, I wanted to make them leave off usury and become like other men by putting them an, upon an equality with Catholics, Protestants, and others. I hope to make them become good citizens and conduct themselves like others in the community. As their Rabbanim explained to them, as their rabbis explained to them, that they ought not to practice usury to their own brother tribes, but were allowed to do so with Christians and others. And therefore, as I had restored them to all their privileges, they were not permitted to practice usury with me or them, but to treat us as if we were of the tribe of Judah. Besides, 
I should have drawn great wealth to France as the Jews are very numerous and would have flocked to a country where they enjoyed so superior privileges. Moreover, I wanted to establish a universal liberty of conscience. So in this letter, he has mixed feelings. He says certain things about them bother him, like taking, like, like you know, lending money with Ribis. Certain things he's doing because he believes in liberal things. And certain things because he's practical. Jews have money, they're successful, and I'm not going to let them go to another country that they'll become better than me. In a private letter to his brother, Jerome, um, he writes, I have undertaken to reform the Jews, but I have not endeavored to draw more of them into my realm. Far from that, I have avoided doing anything which could show any esteem for the most despicable of mankind. So, um, it's very, very hard to know, very hard to know if he knew what he wanted, but I'll call upon him, those, those were his feeling sentiments. Um, the, unfortunately, a lot of what he said became true. The Jews in France, because they got rights, they became very absorbed in the French system, and most of the French Jews assimilated out. Um, Rabbi Zinsheim, while he was in all, embroiled in all this politics and everything else, also had time to learn. I didn't have time to learn. He wrote an incredible set of sfarim that had just recently were published called Yad David. Yad David, what, what he did was, he said there are a lot of sfarim out there, hundreds and hundreds of sfarim that very few people have. And they and they they have what to add to every mesechta. So he wrote on every mesechta in Shas, all the sfarim that speak about that that you know aladaf, that are not lefiseda mesechta. So tshuvas sfarim and and stam sfarim and this and that, and he 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 writes it like a modern day oitzer mefarshat Talmud. He also has wherever Toysvis speaks about the sugya, and it's not brought in the sugya, he writes it down also. It's an incredible work. Hundreds of farms. We don't even have a lot of those farms today because they were lost, and we have it only through him. Today, this type of work has a staff of 10 people and a budget of a few million dollars to, to put out. He did it himself. Besides that, he put out on Chumish. He wrote many chuvas, and he also... Um, put out, he wrote, he has five halak, and we don't have all of them, that they're called, um, he's, uh, the Yad David is on, on, uh, you know, Shas, the Shalal David is on Chumish, and then he has a bunch of Sfarim that go Lefi Seder of Aleph Beis. Like about every Indian, I forgot. I forgot. I just, just forgot the name now. Um, it's the Fiseda Inyanim, like like olive base. It's not a real encyclopedia, but just the Shtikel Torah on you know a Mavirah Mitzvahs on 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 ain this ain that. It, it, that's it was written the Fidat Seda. So so it's incredible. His farm on Shas is Mechon um, Yerushalayim put it out. It's fifteen volumes um, covering all of Shas. And an incredible bikias, an awesome bikias in hundreds of svarim, and the and and you know all of it drawn and written out. He wrote 
Ha'aris to the Neide Behuda on his Sefer. And Neide Behuda wrote back with tremendous derecherets to him, you know, like, and then he wrote back to him, the, and, and so on. So he was back and forth, uh, a, a um, you know, uh, writing back and forth to him. That was uh, 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 one. Chassam Sefer was masked him when after his Ptira, and, and he, was, he was an extraordinarily heroic figure because he had to meet head-on uh, the challenge of a Tkufa like this, where Jews were being offered rights, uh, um, they were being offered a chance to live like human beings. The threat was, if not, the situation would get much worse. They ha- he had to be able to be diplomatic and try to present things in a way that would sound okay to the king. He had to know where he could make a compromise. You know, halakhically, if you can make a takana that you can't get married unless you also have a civil divorce, there's no problem with making a takana like that, and that's what he had to do. But um, not to be mevat on a get, that to him was obviously Arvayavr. Um, it took a lot of chachma. A lot of of of, of uh, shoulders to, to take it on him. The reform tried to later draw on it and saying that the Sanhedrin in 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 Paris was not to this, right? The Sanhedrin was not to that. First of all, that Sanhedrin was no Sanhedrin. One third of it, the laymen was Shkatsim, just plain Shkatsim. Amongst the Rabbonim, the quote unquote Rabbonim that Napoleon selected, um, he writes, most of them, you know, could knew nothing. And they, they, they were not right to be called Rabbanim. He, he did run the assembly single-handedly, so that, to his credit, that, that allowed him to get his Takanism and so on. But um, until Mechon Yerushalayim put out his forum, they really, really were... Um, nobody knew about him, Kemat. I mean, people knew it. People had heard of Sanhedrin. That, that was something everybody heard of the Sanhedrin in Paris that Napoleon convened. But about this person, they had to do a lot of work finding it. His manuscripts were all over. They put it together. It's a, it was a big thing, and it's very chashev. It, it really has... There are firm there that he brings that we do not have today. So, um, so this is a person who stood at crossroads of history. Um, it, it was an incredible tkufa. And Napoleon was kol yochel at the time. And to be able to negotiate with such diplomacy and fidelity to Tyra was an incredible feat. And it's something to remember. His yard site is in Zion Kislev, and um, it's, it's, another, it's another piece in, in an extraordinary history of Kali Yisrael. Okay. His, his, his Talmudim from the yeshiva, his brother-in-law, his brother's yeshiva. Right. They, did it like have a legacy or just kind of fizzled out? Nothing it fizzled out. There wasn't enough of it to go around. It, it sort of fizzled out. Mm-hmm. It's called Minchas Ani. The, the, sefer, the sefer that he wrote, the sefer that he wrote, the feast of his Minchas Ani, he writes, the reason why he calls it Minchas Ani is because he wrote it when he was in Paris at this thing. He had no sefarim with him. So he really feels very poor, and he's still because he sat and learned this net. For having no sfarim, you have to look at you have to look at that sefer. You know, I in here and look at this, and he says this over here, and he says this this. But you feel that it's answered. It's it's um, very very. I mean, it's incredible. The man the man had incredible encyclopedic knowledge, and an extraordinary zikaron. Um, no, nothing, nothing remained. I mean, that's why that community, in, in many Jewish histories, is considered to be 
uh, a non-entity because they didn't produce a, 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 you know anything that really lasted and so on. But they were there. They, there was there, and there were Hashva people there. Shagzai died in Metz. Shagzai was this is where it was. Abishes moved on to Prague. Uh, others moved on, but. Uh, what? Yeah, please. Uh,